Thank you very much for that prayer, and thank you, Wayne, for your kind introduction. It is such a pleasure to be here tonight. It's always good to come here. I love this place. I love this church. And there are many people, as I look around this room, who are very, very dear to my life, who mean a great deal to me and to my family, and I want you to know how much we love you and appreciate you. Um, I, I, feel, I see a lot of preachers, and uh, I'm always a little nervous around preachers, and you should be too, the ones that I know in this room. Uh, I'm not going to call any names, Vestal, but... Uh, I think about uh, 17 years ago, I went to Louisville. We were living in uh, Oklahoma City working with the North MacArthur Church, and they had talked to us about coming to work with that church, and Brother Harold Taylor was retiring from preaching. He was serving as an elder, and he called me, and he said, we want you to come and preach on Sunday night, and we want you to meet with us after the service. And he said, now, I want to be very clear to you uh, that this is not a tryout sermon. And then he said something I'll never forget. But you better not mess it up, boy. <laughs> Those were his exact words. And uh, I don't know whether we messed it up or not, but they let us stay 17 years, so maybe, maybe we didn't do too bad. Such a joy to be with you tonight and to be able to study from the Word of God. I want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Revelation. We're going to start in chapter 1. We'll make our way over to chapter 4 tonight. He is arguably the very best friend that Jesus ever had while Jesus walked on the face of the earth. He was with Christ every step of the way from the first time that he met Christ all the way up to his death and even after his death. He saw Christ at the weakest uh, times in his life when he was enduring a lot of pain and a lot of heartache. He stood there beside him. He saw Jesus when he performed miracles. He listened to Jesus as he taught and as he preached. He spent day and night with Christ for at least three years, and he grew to love him dearly. And so this is the man who not only was the closest friend that Jesus ever had, but he is our brother. And he says so much in Revelation chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, when he talks about three, he, he brings together three concepts in these verses. He talks about um, tribulation, he talks about the kingdom, and he talks about uh, enduring patience. There are three very interesting words in that passage that John uses as he writes to us. And he's telling these people, this is where you are in your life right now. And I understand that because this is where I am in my life. Um, Tribulation, thlips is, is the Greek word there, and it has to do with any kind of suffering or pain that a person can be going through. It was used to talk about somebody hurting their foot to great, great pain that they were enduring in their life. The word kingdom is the word basileia. When these people heard the idea of basileia, they were thinking, I believe, a little bit differently than the people in Acts chapter 1 when they said to Christ, will you now return the kingdom to the Jews? They were talking about an earthly kingdom. They wanted a, a ruler. They wanted a king to, to be over them. Uh, I don't think that's what John is writing about when he writes Revelation chapter 1. When these people thought of kingdom, I believe that they were thinking about the future kingdom. I believe they were thinking about heaven because these people had seen some of their loved ones put to death. They may have thought they were going to be put to death next and they needed a word of encouragement. And then John uses the word hupamone. It's a word that means uh, patient endurance. 
It's not just the kind of patience that allows a person to make it through tough days, to get through a pandemic, uh, to, to kind of uh, walk through life. But it's, uh, it's more, the, the Greek word means more than that. It, it carries with it the idea of conquering patience. It means you don't just get through life. You ever heard somebody say, well, I'm just kind of making it. I'm, I'm getting through. I heard a lot of people say that over the past year when, when it came to the pandemic that we've been through. People would say, how are you doing? And I would hear somebody say, well, we're getting through. We're making, we're making it through. Uh, that's not the word that John is using here. It's not the idea of getting through some, uh, uh, some temporary trial that you're going to deal with. This is more than just getting through, but this is overcoming kind of patience. This is the kind of word that Jesus used in John 10 verse 10 when he said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. This is the kind of word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the overcoming kind of attitude. This is the heart of every child of God who endures whatever it is they're going through in life. These people are in slipses, but they're on their way to Basileia. They wanted to get to the kingdom. Maybe you're here tonight and you feel that way. Maybe you feel like you've gone through a, a great deal of suffering in your life. Maybe you are in great pain right now. You're in great suffering. Some of you are here tonight have gone through great difficulty with your physical health. Maybe some of you have gone through a marriage that didn't end up the way that you wanted it to. Maybe some of you are enduring problems with your teenage children or, or a college student or a grown child. You understand the idea of being in trial and tribulation but looking for the kingdom. They're in thlipses, but they're on their way to Basileia. And that it describes all of us, right? We all want to get to Basileia. We want to get to the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus prepared for us. But if you're going to do that, you've got to go through hupomone. You've got to endure suffering in life. So you don't get from thlipses to Basileia without going through hupomone. You've got to go through some suffering and you've got to be patient. Jesus said, the servant is not greater than the master. And if the master has to suffer, so will the servant suffer. And so John is writing to people who understand this principle. And he says that he's writing from the island of Patmos. I don't know if you've ever been to Patmos or not, but it's a beautiful little place. It's only 10 miles long by 5 miles wide. I can envision it in my mind right now, pulling up from that, in that boat. It is uh, a part of a collection of islands, and it is surrounded by a sea. The word that John uses for sea is the word thasala. It is a word that it, John uses 25 times in the book of Revelation. It's an interesting word. There is one image of the sea, uh, the idea of the sea in Revelation where we have uh, the people who are standing in front of the sea and Christ is on the other side, the throne is on the other side. And then later on the text says, I think it's Revelation chapter 6 maybe, the, says that they are standing on the sea. And then when you get to Revelation, the end of the chapter, the end of the book, it says, the sea was no more. And the image is that there's nothing now that separates us from God. There's always something that is, is kind of keeping us from getting to Basileia. There's always something that's kind of keeping us from being where we want to be, from where we are right now. But there will come a day that that fossila will be no more. We will be standing in the very presence of God, and we're going to see that tonight in Revelation chapter 4. And so John 
right from this island. When we went to Patmos, I, I vividly recall, it's, it's a beautiful place. I, I remember seeing the sun rise early in the morning as we were coming into Patmos on our ship. And you can see the, the, the ocean looks beautiful. Uh, the sun uh, st- rising in the, the sky makes for a beautiful place. They took us by, after we got off the boat, they took us up to a a place on the hillside where there is um, a cave. And they took us inside that cave. And they said, this is where John wrote the book of Revelation from. Now, nobody knows whether or not that's true. But what I recall most was um, in, you, get, you go down inside this cave and there's a desk over there in the corner and there's a sign there and a sign there. And a woman asked me later on, do you think that's the desk that John used? My thought was it looked more like the desk that I used in the first grade. That's the desk I was thinking of. No, that's not the desk. We don't know. But John does tell us this. He says in this verse that I was there because of or for the word of God. Literally, the text says for the sake of the word of God. And I believe it's Barclay who says there are three possible Greek translations there. One is that he was there to preach the Word of God, and certainly we believe that he must have done that while he was there. Another one was that he was there to write the Word of God or to receive the Word of God. The Word came to him. Uh, He had the language of an angel in chapter 1. And the third possibility is that he was banned to go to the island of Patmos. Uh, history records that he was probably there uh, during the days of um, uh, either Nero or one of the other Roman rulers, depending on when you believe that he wrote these words. Um, But he was there because of the Word of God. And it was because of his passion for the Word of God. And it was because of his longing to proclaim the Word of God. And every preacher in this room tonight needs to have that kind of passion to want to preach the Word of God. You know, as a preacher, we do a lot of things. We have a lot of uh, hats that we wear, a lot of jobs that we have. And and I want to be real honest with you. I do a lot of the things that I don't really like to do or, or really cherish doing that much, like going to certain kinds of meetings. But I do that because I get to preach the Word of God, right? Because we get to proclaim the message of God. And we need to have a passion about that. And that's why John was on the island of Patmos. Either because he was in trouble for proclaiming the Word of God or because he wanted to proclaim the Word of God more. And every preacher needs to have that kind of heart. I'm reminded of that great prophet of God by the name of Micaiah. You remember Micaiah in 1 Kings chapter 22? When he was told he needed to speak smooth things, he says in verses 14 through 16, some words that every preacher of the gospel needs to have inscribed on their heart and forever in their mind when he said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says, that will I speak. As the Lord lives, what the Lord says, that will I speak. I think... It was Brother Wendell Winkler who used to say, the what of divine revelation must be the that of human proclamation. We must proclaim the word of God and we must have a passion to do so. Well, that's all introduction. That's really not a part of the sermon, but uh, I'm going to get there, I promise. Revelation chapter 1, two times in chapter 1, John is told by the angel to write what you see in a book. Once in verse 11, once in verse 18 or 19, he is told to write down what he sees. 
And so John is going to, to tell us what he is privileged to see. Now, we could argue about why John got to see this or how he got to see it. Was it just a vision that he had? Was it some kind of dream? Did he actually get to go up to heaven? We could have that debate, but I'm not interested in that tonight. I'm interested in what John saw. And before John gets to the first thing that he sees in Revelation chapter 4, in chapter 1, he gives us a description of Jesus. And what I want to do tonight is to give you some glimpses into the throne room of God. And if you could remember three words tonight, you can remember the bulk of what we're talking about. The first word is the word fire. In Revelation chapter 1, John is giving us a description of Jesus. In about verse 15, after he talks about Christ, he says of him that he has feet like fine brass, or your Bible might say like burnished brass, as if they had been burned in a furnace. Your Bible might say like bronze, as if they had been burned in a furnace. This is a description of Jesus. Uh, Brother Johnny Ramsey, I think it was, who said that there are more than 200 Old Testament references that are found on the pages of the book of Revelation. 200 times John reaches back into the Old Testament and gives us a reference. I believe this is one of the very first references. He has feet like fine brass as if they had been burned in a furnace. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You remember when Nebuchadnezzar said because they refused to bow down, he was going to make the fire hotter than it had ever been before? And he threw them in the fire, bound these three teenage boys. And the text says later on he came back and he saw not three men bound, but four up walking around. And one was like the Son of God. One was like a Son of God. Now, I can't prove this theologically. And I'm not going to go start some new religion based on it. But I believe that in that fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was Jesus Christ. I believe he was there. He allowed them to be unharmed from the fire. He allowed them to be set free from, uh, from the strands that had, were used to bind them. And Jesus Christ is there. Now here's why I believe that. It may be because I want to believe that so badly. It may be because a lot of times in life we're walking through the fire. You may feel like you're walking in the fire tonight and the, the devil has turned up the heat. You may feel like that things are tougher than they've ever been before in your life. Doesn't it give you some sense of hope to know that if Jesus could walk through the fiery trial with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that he can walk through any trial with you that you're enduring in your life? That ought to give us a lot of hope and a lot of comfort. Think about the fact that whatever you're enduring in your life, whatever you are patiently enduring, hupamone, whatever you are going through in your life, that Jesus will not leave you or forsake you, that he will always stand beside you. And John recognized that because he had seen it in his life over and over and over again. I don't know how people endure pain without Christ. I don't know how they endure heartache without Jesus beside them. Most of you know that I lost my wife two years ago. It'll be two years, June the 20th. It's been in many ways the most difficult experience that I've ever been through in my life. And I can tell you that without the people of God, without my own family, but primarily without Jesus, I would have never been able to get through that. But I believe that he was walking with me. Now Christ never promises us that, that he's going to take us out of the fire but sometimes he walks through the fire with us. And I, this image stands in my mind forever that Jesus will be with us. Now, if you will, turn to Revelation chapter 4. 
after you have the letters to the churches in chapter 2 and 3, you come to chapter 4 and John says in the first verse that, um, Behold, I looked and I saw a door standing open in heaven. The door is standing wide open. Remember, you might be in prison right now. You might have seen some of your loved ones put to death and you need a word of encouragement and you get a letter from the closest friend that Jesus ever had on the earth and he says, I want to tell you something. There is a door open in heaven. And I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 4 that says, Let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we might find comfort and help in our time of need. You can walk up to the very throne of God any time, any day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, you are allowed into the presence of the throne of God. Why? Because you have a high priest who the writer of Hebrews says went through the heavens and he sits at the right hand of God. The door is open in heaven and you can enter that door anytime. But then in verse 2, John says, there was a throne, I saw a throne, And it was seated in heaven. Your Bible might say it was standing in heaven. Um, It was sitting in heaven. It's an interesting word. That word itself is the word kaimai. And it literally means it was firmly planted. The word was used oftentimes uh, of something that was buried in the ground. The idea is that when John walks into heaven, the first thing that he sees is this massive throne. And it grabs his attention. It arrests him. Everything that John is going to tell us over the next couple of chapters revolve around this throne. Every, this throne is the centerpiece of heaven. And seated on the throne is God himself. So John says that, that it, was, it was planted in heaven. The idea is that it cannot be moved. There's nothing that can shake the throne of God. In our world, governments come and go. Presidents change. And aren't we glad about that? In our world, nothing stays the same, but in heaven, it is always the same. The throne is planted there, and God is always sitting on that throne. That throne arrests the attention of John. I believe it's the first thing that he saw when he went into heaven. Remember, he was told to write what you see and put it in a book. That throne in Revelation chapter 4 is mentioned over and over and over again. And what we see in Revelation 4 is a picture of heaven itself. And what we learn is that in heaven there is this throne and everything that is in heaven has its proximity to the throne of God. As a matter of fact, if you look beginning in about verse 2 and you go down through about verse 11, there are about 11, I think 11 different prepositions concerning events or objects that are in heaven, prepositions concerning the throne of God. There's one who is sitting on the throne. There is a rainbow that is around the throne. There are the living creatures who come out from the throne. There's the sound that comes out from the throne. There are 24 subordinate thrones that surround this throne. Um, These men who are seated on these 24 thrones are given crowns that are placed on their head. By the way, the crown there, the picture of the crown is the the, uh, Stephanos, the crown of victory. It was the crown that was given to the ancient Greeks in the Olympic Games when they were victorious. It's the idea of 1 Corinthians 15 that says we are be given a crown of righteousness. 
When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Therefore, I know that there is this crown of righteousness laid up for me in heaven. It's that crown. And it's given to these men who surround the throne of God. And these men are going to take those crowns off their heads and they're going to cast them before the throne. And so everything in heaven has its proximity to the throne. Then you've got these 24 elders and there's a lot of speculation about who they are. Uh, Some say, well, there are 12 of them that represent maybe the 12 tribes of Israel or some Old Testament prophets or Old Testament worthies. There are 12 perhaps that represent the apostles or the writers of the New Testament. The truth is nobody knows who they are. I've often wondered, though, is it possible that it's exactly who John says that it is? Is it possible that these are elders, leaders in the kingdom of God who are seated seated on these thrones, that they've been given a place of recognition in heaven because of their service to the church of our Lord? And so then you come on down to about verse 8 and 9, and you see the host of heaven. And they're crying out to the one who's seated on the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. This is one of those great triads that are mentioned throughout Scripture. There's not that many of them, but occasionally you'll find three words that are linked together that are repeated over and over again. Sometimes you'll find two words, like Jesus will say, truly, truly, or verily, verily. Occasionally you'll have a word like holy, 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 holy. It suggests there is something different about the one who is seated on the throne, something different from everyone else that is in heaven or everyone else who is on earth. There's something different about this being on the throne. He is holy. Holy, the the holiness of God is one of the attributes of God. There are two different types of attributes of God. There are what we call the... the, um, non-moral attributes of God, and then there are the moral attributes of God. When we talk about the non-moral attributes of God, we're talking about things like omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. We're talking about things like immutability, that God is all-knowing, that God is all-seeing, that God is everywhere, that God is all-powerful, that God never changes, that God is constant. Those are non-moral attributes of God. That means that No human being can possess those attributes. You can work on your omnipotence all day long, but it's not going to get there. You can work on omnipresence all day long, but you're not going to be able to be everywhere at the same time. Although, when I was a kid, I thought my mother was omnipresent. You know, I thought she had eyes in the back of her head. I I recall one day I got in trouble at school and I won't tell you what I did, but I got in trouble at school. And when I got home, my mom said, so what happened at school today? And I said, well, we uh, took a spelling test and did some math. And she said, is that all? And I said, well, exactly what do you mean by is that all? She said, I hear you got called to the principal's office. And I thought, how in the world did she know that? She must be omnipresent. But she's not because nobody is omnipresent. Nobody is omniscient, all-knowing. Now, I don't know about you, but I've met some people who are Christians who act like they're omniscient. 
You know, they think they know everything, but nobody, you can work on those attributes of God all day long and you'll never get there. But there are some moral attributes of God. God is kind. And we can all learn to be a little bit more kind. God is patient. We can all be a little more patient. God is compassionate. And we can all be more compassionate. God is love. And we certainly can learn to love each other more. And God is holy. And every child of God needs to work on our holiness. We're not going to magically become holy. There's not going to be some kind of mental transfer of the ability to become more holy. We become holy when we become like Christ, when we follow in his steps, when we do what he wants us to do. We can become more like God. We can become more like Jesus. But that word holy, 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 that phrase, I don't think it means what we often think that it means, but it was an idea, according to the Greeks, many times they would use three words to give emphasis to, to go from one place that is lower to a place that is higher. So it's like they were saying, these beings were saying as they cried out to him, holy, holier, holiest, that God is the holiest being in all of the universe. John recognized the holiness of God. So we have the image of the fire, the image of the throne, and then one other image in Revelation chapter 5. If you look at verses 1 and 2, the text says that I saw the one who was sitting on the throne and he had a book that was opened and um, he had a book on his lap and this book had seals, it was sealed on the back, it had writing on the back and on the inside. And John said, you remember uh, there was nobody who could be found who could open that book. We couldn't find anybody to open the book. Now, it's my belief that when John said we couldn't find anybody to open the book, he wasn't talking about physically opening the book. He was talking about explaining the book, giving an understanding of the book. You remember in the days of Nehemiah that the people stood in the courtyard and they gave not only the reading of the Word of God, but they gave the meaning of the Word of God. And so there was nobody who could explain what this book was all about. And John said, we scoured heaven and earth and we, we could not find anyone. But finally, John is weeping, the text says. He is weeping greatly. The, the Greek indicates that he was weeping almost uncontrollably. Why? Because he wants to know what is in the book, just like we would all love to know what was in that book. I've heard a lot of speculation about it. One fellow said, well, that was the book, uh, that was the Lamb's book of life, and all the names of all of the people who have ever obeyed Christ are found in that book. Somebody else said, I believe it's the book of deeds that contains all of the deeds that people have done for God. Another person said, I think it's the book of history that contains all of the big world events that have ever occurred. I don't know, history you ever heard the statement that history is really all about his story? I don't know what was in the book. John wants to know, and so he's weeping. You know what the text says next? The text says that, that one of the elders, remember back in chapter 4, verse 4, these men who are sitting on the throne, that one of the elders came to John and he said, John, quit weeping. 
Stop weeping, John. We found somebody. Can I pause just for a moment and say that we may be living in a day that what we need in the church more than we have in many, many years are elders who understand the pains and the heartaches of the flock of God. And I want an elder who I want an elder who knows this book and who has studied this book and who can teach this book. But I want an elder who when when I'm weeping will come over and put his arm around me and say, Jeff, everything's going to be okay. We may not know how. When my wife passed away, my elders called me into a room. On Sunday, we had service. The funeral was on Saturday. On Sunday after the service, they called me in and they said, um, I want you to take some time off. Go spend two or three weeks, whatever you need. Go visit family and friends and just get away a little bit. And they gathered around me. They put their arms around me and they prayed. May God raise up men who will be men who understand the pains and the heartaches of the flock of God. Who will come beside them and put their arm around them and say, we don't know how, we can't figure it out, but we can assure you that we're going to be beside you and the Lord is going to be with you and everything is going to be okay. So he said, we found somebody. And you know who they found. They found Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ gives meaning to our lives. He gives meaning to history. He gives meaning to everything that is a part of who we are. Christ gives the meaning He can explain the meaning. But what I want you to not forget tonight is the description of Jesus because John gives us in this context in Revelation 5 two different descriptions of Jesus. First of all, he says that he was the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah. What do you think about when you think about a lion? You think about power and might and strength. You know, the lion, the the king of the jungle, all-powerful. He can overcome anything. He can overcome anyone. There's no one who can defeat the lion. John says that's our Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is all-powerful. He didn't just say all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He showed that all power had been given to him. He calmed the sea He calls the lame to walk. He calls the deaf to see. He raised the dead. He is all-powerful. There's nothing. We taught our children that song, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. I want to ask you something tonight, brothers and sisters. Do you believe that with all of your heart? Do you believe that there's nothing that God cannot overcome? Do you believe that there's nothing that your God cannot do? 
the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The, the lion represents the fact that God can do anything. The lion says God can. But then John gives us this odd, striking difference. Not just the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, but a lamb. A lamb as though he had been slain from the foundation of the world. I mean, what, what is this all about? I understand the line, the power of God, that, that God can do anything. And that's what they needed at that time to know that whatever they were dealing with in their life, that Jesus would be with them, that he can do anything. But a lamb? And then I remember the prophet Isaiah. He'll be led like a lamb, dumb before his shearers. He'll not open his mouth. Did you know twice in Isaiah 53, the prophet says that he poured out his soul unto death? I want to challenge you to do some study on that phrase. He poured out his soul unto death. What does that mean? Well, I know it, he, he gave his life for us. We all understand that. But he poured out his soul, Isaiah says, twice. He poured out his soul into death. I believe that means, in part at least, that he gave his all for us. He was willing to, to lay down his life. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. They don't take my life from me, he said. They can't do that because I'm all-powerful. The lamb represents gentleness and meekness, vulnerability, and a willingness to do whatever one is called upon to do. That's our Jesus. He's the lion and he's the lamb. The lion is all-powerful. The lamb is all willing. The lion says God can. The lamb says God will. I've known some people in my life who had a lot of power, financial power or political power or work power. They just seem like people with a lot of power. And a lot of us don't feel like we have a lot of power. My granddaughter, when she was real little, she would fall down on the floor. And I'd say to her, Evie Lee, come over here to Dr. Pops and I'll take care of it. She'd say, Pops, you're not a doctor. She'd fall down. I'd say, Evie Lee, come over here to Dr. Pops and I'll fix it. She said, Pops, you're not a doctor. I do that all the time. Finally, one day she got tired of it, I think. She fell on the ground. I said, Evie Lee, come to Dr. Pops and I'll fix it. And she said, Pops, you're not a doctor. You're a preacher. Pops, stick to what you know. (laughs) You know, a lot of us don't feel like we have a lot of power. I remember my mother talking about, you know, some people are in control of a lot of things and but they're not always willing. They won't always do what you need done. They won't always take care of the problem that you're dealing with in your life. Then there's this lamb. 
The lamb is meek and gentle. The lamb is vulnerable. I'm reminded of people that my mom would say, that person, they're so loving and so caring, they would give you their shirt off their back. (laughs) But that's about all they got. No power. But they would. But our Lord has all power and he's willing. The lion says, God can do anything. The lamb says, God will do anything. And you put the lion and the lamb together, my friends, you have the gospel that God is willing and that God is able 2 Corinthians 5, 18 says all these things are from God. He's just talked about being a new creation. Old things have passed away. Verse 17, behold, all things have become new. And then he says all these things are from God. And he talks about the fact that God has involved us in what he calls this ministry of reconciliation. And he says in verse 21 that He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What happened on the cross is the explanation of the fact that God can and God will. That God has the power to save us. But he loves us so much that he gave his only son. I have one son. We lost a son when he was not long after he was born. But I have one son. There's a lot of people that I love. And there's some people in this room that I love who are very dear to me. But I'm not giving my son for any of you. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. I could do that probably. But God can and God will. And so he made him, he made him who knew no sin. Let me just mention briefly what that is talking about. He, that's talking about God, made him who knew no sin. Who is that? Well, of course, that's Jesus Christ. One writer said, when he asked about who is it that knew no sin, he said, the field becomes very narrow at this point. (laughs) I love that. There's only one person who has ever walked on the face of this earth who knew no sin made him who knew no sin, to become sin for us. No, it doesn't mean that he became a sinner. I heard a preacher one time say that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that to be able to understand what we went through or what we're going through, he temporarily became a sinner. And the answer to that is no, a thousand times no. He never committed a single solitary sin He was as sinless hanging on the cross as he had been in eternity before and all throughout his life and as he would be in eternity after. He was the only one it could be said of that he knew no sin. No wonder Pilate said, I can't find any fault in this man. No wonder Peter said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? And the most monumental testimony of his perfectness come from the Father himself who said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What does it mean? It 
means he treated him like he was a sinner. He treated him like he was a sinner. And what happened on that cross was because God had the power and the willingness was he laid all of our sins upon the back of his son. The text says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He laid our sins on him. He took our sins away and he gave us his righteousness. And none of us could gain that righteousness on our own. It's impossibility. There's no person who is good enough to gain the righteousness of God by themselves. He took away our sins so that he could give us his righteousness. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. And it was the greatest exchange that's ever been made in your life and in mine. That God had the power to save us and he had the willingness to save us. The throne. The lion and the lamb. And whatever you're dealing with in your life, Whatever eclipses you're going through right now, your goal is Basileia. You want to get to that eternal kingdom. You're a part of the kingdom of God tonight because by virtue of the fact that you have done exactly what that, those last two words in 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's only in Christ. But when you're in Christ, you're in the kingdom but we're longing for that eternal kingdom. We're, we're in Thlipsis headed toward Basileia. And my prayer for every person present tonight is that you will remain steadfastly loyal, whatever comes your way, knowing that Christ will walk with you and he will someday invite you into that eternal kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight that through your infinite, everlasting mercy and knowledge that you gave us a picture, a small glimpse into the great throne room of heaven. Father, we're thankful tonight that we can pillow our heads tonight knowing that you're sitting on that throne and knowing that whatever is going on on this earth politically or socioeconomically or in our families or in our work or in our congregations knowing that you are forever planted on the throne and that we can rest with that assurance tonight. Father, we thank you that we have the promise that whatever is going on in our life that Jesus will walk through the fire with us Father, we thank you that he is the lion and that he is the lamb. We thank you, Father, that he can and that he will. And may we share that glorious good news with everybody that we know and everybody that we come in contact with. Father, my prayer tonight is for anyone who is in this room who, who needs to be drawn closer to Jesus. For anyone who is hurting, who is going through pain, who is faithfully enduring, that you will bless them in a special way and that you'll give them courage and conviction and that you'll help all of us, whatever we're dealing with in this life,
to remain steadfastly loyal to you. We thank you for your marvelous word. And we thank you for our wonderful Savior. In his precious name we pray. Amen. When I told Jeff, based on the way things were set up today, we wouldn't have an invitation, I saw a look in his eyes. And maybe a look of disappointment or just surprise. And I think I know why. We don't need a song to respond to the call of the gospel. We don't need a post.